prayer is that we will hear this today and in the coming weeks as good news and rejoice in it. And we'll get a taste this morning for what this good news is. But before we see what the good news is, we're going to think about who it is for from these first few verses of Mark's gospel. Who is the good news for? And that's our first point. If you like taking notes, there's plenty of blank space in your note sheet to do that. Point number one, good news for wilderness people. I don't know if you noticed it when Doyen read the passage to us, but Mark wants us to be really clear that these introductory verses to his book, they take place in the wilderness. It's there four times. Have a look down again. In in verse 3, this this messenger that's predicted by Isaiah uh, is going to cry out in the wilderness. John the Baptist, who is the messenger Isaiah predicted, appears in verse 4, and he is baptizing in the wilderness. Jesus, in verse 12, uh, goes out into the wilderness, and Mark repeats it, and he was in the wilderness, verse 13, for 40 days. Mark wants us to see that, doesn't he? He wants us to see the, the, the geographical setting of these verses. Why would that be? Why is it important that this happens in the wilderness? Well, in the wilderness, the Bible has a really rich meaning. The wilderness is not a nice place. It's hot, it's dry, there's no water there. Uh, you're hungry and you're thirsty when you're in the wilderness. You want to get out of the wilderness. But it's often the place that God sends people in judgment, as punishment. It's a place where God's people have to travel through while they wait for something better. But the wilderness is also often in the Bible the place where good news is proclaimed, where promises are made, and where hope is born. And so when Mark draws our attention to this wilderness setting, he's pointing to the reality that we live in a fallen world, under God's judgment, that life is not all it ought to be, but he's also preparing us to receive some good news. It's in this wilderness that good news comes. So this book of good news about Jesus is good news for wilderness people. What does that mean? This news will only be good news for you if you're prepared to accept that you are a wilderness person, that we are a wilderness church. Not just because we don't have a pastor at the moment. We've always been a wilderness church. Christians have always been wilderness people. People who who know that the world and our lives are not what they are meant to be. People who thirst and hunger for something more, something better. For some of us, that's a feeling that we know, um, uh, that, sorry, that's not a feeling that we know all that well. Hungering and thirsting for something better. Because for some of us, life is going well. Exams are passed, friends are plentiful. The person who looks back at you in the mirror in the morning is someone that you quite like the look of. The bank balance is better than most. The future is bright. Others of us know the brokenness of the world a little more clearly and nearly. We are chronically ill, we are chronically sad, we are chronically disappointed, we are chronically let down, we are chronically tired. Being a wilderness person means knowing that and feeling that. Is that you? But it's also more than that, knowing that, that, that somehow we're, we're responsible for that. The blame for the wilderness of this world is ours 
Not necessarily the blame for our specific pains and troubles. Hear me very loudly and clearly on that. The amount of pain in our life does not reflect the amount of sin and wrong in our life. But we are all part of the mess of this world. We've all turned away from God and we're all in the wilderness because we're under his judgment. And being a wilderness person means knowing and owning that. Being a wilderness person means hoping for something better. And knowing that that hope is outside of you. Knowing that you cannot rescue yourself. Depending on that better place being given to you rather than being achieved by you. That, I think, is something about what it means to be a wilderness person. That's the type of person I think we need to be if we're going to see this as good news. Notice how in verse 5, the people symbolically declare themselves to be wilderness people because they leave the promised land. They leave where they live in Judea and Jerusalem and they go out to John in the wilderness where he is in the River Jordan confessing their sins. It's as if they're saying, and and we're to read it, I I think uh, with that symbolism in mind, yes, we may live in the promised land, but really we know we're, we're wilderness people. We need help. We need washing. We need forgiveness. And we confess our sins. And we come to you, John, uh, for this baptism for forgiveness. And so, I'll say it again, as we start this journey through Mark's gospel over the next few months, that's the attitude that we must have too. We must metaphorically leave Jerusalem and Judea. Leave leave all of our pretensions that things are well with us. That we are sorted. And leave them behind. Sometimes that's a hard thing to admit, isn't it? That you're hungry, that you're thirsty, that you're longing for something better and that you know you can't get it yourself. But we must come out to the wilderness and hear this message of good news. So that's who the good news is for, for wilderness people. What is the good news? What is it? Well, the good news is all about Jesus. And I'm going to um, uh, put it into two parts for us. Firstly, who Jesus is, and secondly, what Jesus will do. So, the good news is news about who Jesus is. His identity. I think there's a real richness in in, uh, this passage about those things, which we won't be able to dig into all of it, but but let's just uh, pick out some, some headlines. There are three witnesses to the identity of Jesus in this passage. There are the Old Testament prophets... Isaiah, who's mentioned, and also Malachi, who's, who's quoted there without being mentioned, poor guy. Um, but they, back in the Old Testament, were uh, predicting that a messenger would come who would prepare the way for the arrival of, verse 3, the Lord. The arrival of God himself. John the Baptist then appears, the one that they uh, were speaking of, the messenger that would come. He's dressed like the Old Testament prophet Elijah, and he says that, Uh, that the mighty one is coming soon, verse 7 to 8. He's coming, he's on the way. The Lord is coming. And as John preaches, in those days, verse 9, there may be something about the power of preaching there, perhaps, to, to, to draw out. But as John preaches, and the expectation builds that, that God himself is about to arrive, who arrives? Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Here is Jesus. Here is 
God himself arrived as promised all those years ago. And then the third witness to Jesus' identity comes in the baptism episode. Um, Jesus is baptized by John, and as he's baptized, as he's coming out of the water, the heavens are torn open, which is an Old Testament phrase for for God arriving on the scene, breaking out of heaven onto earth to, to do his stuff. And we see the Trinitarian God in action, God the Father witnessing to the identity of Jesus speaking, you are my beloved son. God the Spirit coming upon him and God the Son, Jesus himself, the beloved son carrying out his father's will perfectly. God's promise to arrive on the scene, to break into the world, to save his people is here. God himself is here. Who Jesus is, he is God himself, breaking into earth. Incredible. The identity of Jesus here isn't just about his divinity, though. The Son of God in the Old Testament was also used in in several other ways. Most importantly, perhaps, it was a kingly title. This is showing us that Jesus is the promised king, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. He's promised, and now he's here to bring his people out of the wilderness and to bring them home. So good news about who Jesus is, but we'll spend a little bit more time thinking about the good news, thirdly, about what Jesus will do. This is good news about what Jesus, this king, will do. And a a couple of uh, things to see here. Firstly, we see that Jesus will come alongside his people. Jesus will come alongside his people. That, I think, is why Jesus gets baptized. It's strange, isn't it, that... um, John is baptizing people who need forgiveness and and repentance. And then along comes Jesus, who who doesn't. John's already said that Jesus is greater than than John. But Jesus offers himself a baptism. Not because he needs washing and forgiveness, but because he wants to and needs to identify with his people. So even though Jesus is God, mighty God, mighty King, he has come to come near. So if Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm joining your team now. I'm one of you. I'm one with you. I'm alongside you. I just think that is such an important lesson for us to, 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 to learn and to know and to grasp because I think for many of us, our default perhaps is to think of Jesus as a, like a divine commander. You know, he's, he's up there somewhere in the sky. He's telling us what to do, perhaps giving us some good advice, perhaps some commands, maybe some good news promises, but, but essentially he's, he's kind of far off. He's distant and separate. But the baptism of Jesus reminds us that, no, he is our brother. He has come near. He knows us. He understands our feeble frame as the old hymn goes. So Jesus is with us as God, but also with us in our humanity. He's with us in the wilderness. Notice that that's the first place that he goes after his baptism. He's not a king in a palace. He's a king for the streets, a king for the real world. So what will Jesus do? Well, he's come to be with us, to draw near to us, to draw alongside us. But there's more as well that Jesus will do. Come with me to the world of sci-fi. 
and the planet Eldon. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's located in Sector 4 of Cosm's Well. It's just on the edge of the intergalactic void. It's a stunningly beautiful planet. It's got oceans that, that sparkle. It's got mountains that tower over golden beaches and luscious green forests. It's inhabited by a tribe of, of humanoids called the Bjorkans. But the Bjorkans are unfortunately unable to enjoy their beautiful planet. They're living in this beautiful place, but they are forced to live stunted and miserable lives because of a fearsome enemy that lives in the forest. Uh, the enemy is called the odious Snorzil, and it has been terrorizing the Bjorkans for millennia. The Snorzil is, an, is in a, 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 an enormous, mighty beast, and it lives deep in the forest, but it comes out at night and it roams the island of Eldon. It devours the Bjorkans' children. It destroys their crops. It deposits its foul droppings everywhere it goes. And they stink the place out. But not only do they stink the place out, if those droppings are touched, the Bjorkans come out in painful sores, which quickly become infected and often lead to death. The misery of the Bjorkans knows no bounds. They live in this place that should be perfect. And it is utter hell. One day, however, from out of the, the purple sky, a gleaming silver spaceship zooms down onto one of the beaches. The bewildered Bjorkans gather round as the door of the spaceship opens, and down its silver ramp walks a, a rugged, muscle-bound figure with a bag slung over his shoulder and looking like he means business. This man, if that is what he is, he strides off the beach and what does he do? He strides straight into that forest, grabbing from his bag as he does the most enormous gun. The people watch on as he disappears into the forest. And a few minutes later, they hear some, some commotion, the crashing of branches, the sound of a struggle, the roars and snorts of the snorkel, snarkel, whatever he was called. Then nothing but silence. Smoke and dust rise slowly from the forest, and the people watch, and they wait. And then, out from the forest strides the figure from the spaceship. Behind him is a rope, and he is dragging out from behind him the dead carcass of the snarkill, and he flings it at their feet and says, there you go. I've beaten him for you. The Bjorkans are free. Their enemy is dead. Their champion has won. A new and a better future has begun. Well, no analogy is perfect, but I had a bit of fun imagining that story. And, and, and I wonder, does it just help us to, to see a little bit about what Mark is showing us here? See, what will Jesus do? What's the good news? It's not just that he's come alongside us, which is important but he is going to fight and defeat our mortal, deadly enemies. Jesus arrives into our world, and no messing, verse 12, straight away declares war on our enemy, on Satan, the one who terrorizes him, the one that we cower in fear of. Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, seeks him out, strides into his territory, and confronts him. Isn't that the kind of saviour 
that we want, someone who knows who our greatest enemy is and who is determined to do something about it. There's a little parallel here um, uh, between Jesus and Adam. Notice that phrase in verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. It's the same phrase used in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve are judged by the Lord and the Lord drives them out of the garden into the wilderness in judgment. And the world was never the same again. Here Jesus is driven out, not in judgment, but as a declaration of war. God declaring war on his enemies, saying, I'm coming for you, I've got your number, I know who you are, and I'm doing something about it. And will Jesus succeed where Adam failed? Well, in Mark chapter 1, he doesn't explicitly say, we get the sense that he he resists the devil's temptation there in, in, in verse 13. But come back for the rest of the book, won't you? Because the rest of the book makes it clear that Jesus will win. Jesus has won. In the coming chapters, he will confront sin. Defeated. He will confront sickness. Defeated. He will confront death. Defeated. He will confront evil itself. Defeated. Jesus strides into the world, makes a beeline for our enemies, and does them in. Defeated. The second half of the book, though, is going to show us that the way that this king defeats our enemies is not in that muscle-bound might that we imagined in our silly story with guns and weapons, but he defeats them in what looks like weakness, by service, by death on a cross, and then victory in resurrection. So that's where we're heading in this book. That's some of the good news. More of that to come. For for now, this morning, can we see Jesus as our champion? God himself come from heaven to come alongside us to defeat our enemies. That's what we need to grapple with and take away this morning. And if you are a wilderness person, hungry, thirsty, desperate for help, then this Jesus will thrill your heart. He is the one that you've been waiting for. So come out to the wilderness. Confess your sin. As we'll see next week, the, the, the core message, repent. Confess that sin and then believe in this king. Believe this good news about Jesus, your king, your brother, your champion. Let's pray together. Our uh, loving and um, gracious Father, we thank you for promising a saviour to us uh, in time, eternity past. And we thank you for sending Jesus to us. We thank you that he comes near to us, he comes alongside us, he knows our pain, our feebleness, that we can do nothing, that we are helpless. And we thank you that he strides out to meet our enemy head on. And thank you that he is victorious. We confess our sins, we confess our part in in this mess, and we thank you for the good news that Jesus has victoriously come to sort it out.
Thank you for Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen.